Today's gospel lesson revolves around a parable, but what makes it a little strange is that Jesus isn't the one who tells the parable. This time, it's the Sadducees who come to Jesus with a story they tell in order to get a point across. A man dies leaving behind a wife but no children, they explain. So his brother does his religious duty and marries the widow in order that she might be cared for. But then that brother dies. So the next in line takes on the responsibility. But before long, that brother dies. And a fourth and a fifth and a sixth. And finally, a seventh also dies. And when the widow dies and she gets to heaven, they ask, whose wife will she be? The Sadducees' story comes with some patriarchal cultural baggage, to say the least. But setting that aside for a moment, and we'll come back to that in a minute, but setting aside that for a moment, don't you think they make a good point? Haven't you ever wondered that when you're dad dies and your mom remarries, aren't you curious how God will sort all of that out when we get to heaven? Whose dinner table will she eat at? Who will sleep in the bed next to her? We all know that when we exchange wedding vows, we do so until we are parted by death, but I don't really like that part. <laughs> Yes, I understand that sometimes after a spouse has died, people are comforted by being able to marry again in this life. But can't we get back together with our true love for all eternity? It'd be such a shame to spend so much of this life trying to figure out how to live with another person to spend eternity without the benefit of that perfected relationship. But of course, that's not the point. And actually, it's not the point the Sadducees have in mind either, they don't care about marriage. They're not interested in knowing how marital relationships get sorted out in God's ultimate reign because they don't believe in the resurrection. They think the whole thought is as silly as you or me trying to figure out whom our mother will be married to when she gets to the pearly gates. The Sadducees tell this story as a sort of trap a way to tell Jesus what they already know to be true. That those sects of Judaism that believe in the resurrection have got it all wrong. People who talk like that, they claim, are perverting the word of God by adopting unfounded and frivolous modern cultural adaptations like the resurrection of the dead. It doesn't matter what the Greeks or Romans think. Nowhere in the Torah, nowhere in the books of Moses is there any mention of heaven or the resurrection. The Sadducees might be right about that. The only references to heaven and hell in the Hebrew scriptures come from the latter prophets, most notably this little second century BC addition to Daniel's story that reflects as much pagan influence as Jewish faith. But even though the Sadducees might be right about that, that the Hebrew scriptures don't really talk about heaven and hell, they couldn't be more wrong because their minds are stuck in an earthly perspective. The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, Jesus explains. 
But those who are worthy of a place in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry or are given in marriage. Why? Because that's not how heaven works. Marriage is an important institution in this life, but it has no place. It makes no sense in that age where all relationships are perfected. The intimacy that I share with my spouse and my children in this world are a mere shadow of the union that we all have with God and therefore with one another in God's reign. Here on earth, marriage is a sign. It gives us a glimpse of what union, fidelity, and love are like. But in heaven, you don't need a ring on your finger or vows holding a relationship together in order to know what fidelity and love are like. Jesus shows the Sadducees that their mistake isn't trying to understand marriage. It's because they haven't even begun to understand God's reign. You can't understand who God is or what God is doing as long as you're trying to squeeze the limitless love of God into a rigid human construct. It doesn't work that way. God doesn't work that way. The only way we can understand is when the Holy Spirit takes our minds and our hearts and our souls and lifts them even into the very life of God. To make that point, Jesus takes the Sadducees' argument and flips it on its head, not explaining marriage, not even explaining heaven, but pointing to the very nature of God. The fact that the dead are raised, Moses himself showed, Jesus argues, in the story about the bush where he speaks of God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's a pretty generous reading of Exodus 3. <laughs> If you go back and read Exodus 3, it's pretty hard to leave that passage thinking that it has anything to do with heaven or resurrection. But the point Jesus is making is that we can't allow our minds and hearts to stay in the limited construct that is handed to us on a page. Reading the sacred word of God is about allowing the Holy Spirit to take us into the word of God where it dwells in the heart and mind and life of the eternal trinity. We know that God is a generous God. We know that God is a loving God. And if we know that, we must know, as Jesus tells us, that God is a God of the living. Just as the Sadducees couldn't understand how heaven works, because their minds were stuck in an earthly mentality, we, too, will never grasp the generous truth of God until our minds inhabit that generous truth. Now, back in Jesus' day, the biggest theological debate, it seems, was over the resurrection. The Bible didn't say it. Purists wouldn't have it. Logic couldn't understand it. Yet many had come to believe and know that the fulfillment of God's promises must be true not only in this life, but in the age to come. And how did they know it? Because they knew and believed in a generous God. Everything they knew about God, everything they'd ever experienced about God, encouraged them to allow their minds to be stretched by that faith. And when it was stretched, 
that faith led them to a hope that is bigger than the words on a scroll, that is bigger than the traditions of the elders. It brought them to grasp a truth that is even bigger than any the world had yet known. I don't know what the next really big theological dilemma will be. We've had our own struggles over marriage, and it feels like the body of Christ isn't finished wrangling over that yet. Passages like this gospel passage, with its roots in patriarchy and misogyny, reflect an understanding of gender and authority that are not only trapped in the past, but are alive and well here today. They affect not only ultra-conservative churches, but even congregations like ours, where women may not have to cover their heads or remain silent in church, but they're routinely told how pretty they are before they're told how smart they are. That inherited behavior, which many of us who grew up in the American South share, it might come from good intentions, but it makes it harder for us to take seriously the contribution that women have in the leadership of our church. We are still a long, long way from valuing every human being regardless of her gender identity and undoing generations of using the Bible and religion to bind women and non-binary individuals in lesser roles it requires changing the way we talk about God and changing which sacred text we prioritize and changing the way we use those texts to shape our faith and life together. Similarly, we've used the Bible and the doctrines of our faith to speak of people of color as less than human for a lot longer than we've spoken about equality. And reversing millennia of religious traditions requires people who have benefited from doing things the way we've always done them to see something new. And we can't see something new until our minds are lifted beyond the scope and experiences of our lives and brought even into the generous mind of God. Our God is always more generous than we imagine God to be. Our God is always more loving than we dreamed that God would be. But believing that doesn't mean leaving behind the faith of our ancestors. On the contrary, it means bringing that faith with us into whatever new understanding the Holy Spirit is leading us to glimpse. It means trusting that our gracious and generous God may still have something to show us. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.